until we're willing to walk behind and say, okay, you lead on this issue, how can we help you and genuinely do that and continually remind yourself that you're not leading this process, then we can't even begin to start to look at what partnership might be. I'm Lee Matthews and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Organisations all over the world are engaging in a long overdue self-analysis and reflection of how they operate and how they engage with communities whom they've traditionally worked on behalf of. This can be both confronting and challenging, but it's also entirely necessary if we want to dismantle the harmful systems and structures that are rooted in colonialism and underpin how we operate. So how do organisations best go about this when they're still part of and beholden to these systems? I've invited the amazing Alim Ali onto the podcast today to unpack this and talk about what this journey looks like in practice. Alim is the CEO of Welcoming Australia, which works with leaders and organisations across the country to cultivate a culture of welcome and advance communities where people of all backgrounds can belong contribute and thrive. Aleem has spent the past 20 years seeding and mentoring the development of leading initiatives and social enterprises that advance welcoming and inclusive communities in Australia. He is also a mentor and advisor to various startups, community enterprises and government agencies. Welcome to the Good Problem podcast, Aleem. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming. Going to ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? I started a social enterprise a few years ago called For the Common Good, at which time I defined common good as the most good for all people, which is a broad and lovely but clearly problematic definition because what's good for me may not be good for you especially when it comes to people in positions of privilege and power. You know, what's good for the CEO and shareholders of a major corporation may not be good for the workers and employees of that corporation. And the country that we live in and benefit from and work in, Australia is a settler colonial nation where an injustice has been perpetuated for centuries based on the lie of terra nullius, which is all to say that I currently frame doing good in the context of justice. And I kind of see justice as being about challenging, subverting, and either dismantling or transforming the systems of power and privilege that essentially maintain and thrive on oppression and dispossession and poverty. And so whether that's first people's justice or gender justice or climate justice or justice for people seeking asylum, I guess that's how I kind of frame doing good. Yeah, great. I'm interested to know how that has evolved for you over time. How is it different from perhaps what you thought good was in your early 20s, for example? My story, I guess, is kind of marked by various journeys of good and I guess kind of innovation maybe in that space. So my dad migrated to Australia from Fiji in the 60s and he was a very talented electronics technician who was sponsored here by the Australian government to study and work at the Brisbane airport in telecommunications. And my dad's 
great-grandparents. So my great-great-grandparents were from India and they were indentured labourers under the British Empire. They were meant to receive wages and a small amount of land and in some cases the promise of a return passage once their contract was over. But what happened was that they ended up in Fiji from northern India. My mum was a sixth-generation Irish-Australian born to a Catholic dad and a Protestant mum which was pretty much forbidden at the time. And then my mum, a Christian, married my dad, a Muslim, again, pretty much unheard of at the time. And so my journey is sort of founded on multi-faith and these kind of different concepts of coming together. And so my first name, Aleem, is Arabic and my last name, Ali, is Arabic, but my middle name is Sean, uh, which is Irish, which speaks to my heritage. And so I'd often go to the mosque with my dad on Friday and be sent to Sunday school at the local Baptist church by my mum, kind of did stuff that certainly looking around no one else was really doing. We kind of grew up on a humble suburban block and juiced any green plant and vegetable long before it was fashionable and boost juice was a thing. And we, we marched for Aboriginal land rights, even though I didn't really understand what that meant as a kid growing up. And I knew that we never shopped at the local supermarket at the time because it was owned by a South African company during the apartheid regime. You know, all those experiences were obviously very formative. I don't know that anything that I've ever done I've necessarily framed as doing good. I think I've just been raised to want to try and make a difference and do that in a way that hopefully not only doesn't do harm, but leaves things a bit better than when I came into contact with them, if that's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Having grown up in that multi-faith environment, do you see different interpretations of like what is good from, from both sides or is there a lot of similarities that you've kind of absorbed and melded together? Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities. I think there's a lot of misconception and stereotypes of what people think either of those faith traditions have and bring. I mean, at the centre of them is this concept of peace, a concept of being part of something that's much bigger than ourselves, which is confronting in a world that can be very much about me and what I want and capitalism and consumerism very much feeds that sense and love and believing that within both those faith traditions that God is love and that our lives are measured by how we love and who we love. And so that, I think, has kind of framed a lot of that for me. Yeah. You're the CEO of Welcoming Australia. Can you tell listeners what you do there and what the purpose of Welcoming Australia is? Welcoming Australia is 10 years old this year. It was an organisation that formed around trying to change the conversation, particularly when it came to refugees and people seeking asylum in this country. And so... The initial formation happened in Adelaide about 11 years ago when there was protests happening in and around a community detention centre. And those protests weren't happening because people were worried about the conditions that people who 
were fleeing war and torture and trauma and the reasons that they were coming to this country was was for safety. They weren't protesting because they were worried about people being put in detention. They were protesting because the detention centre was being opened to people seeking asylum and they were worried essentially about their house prices. And so it was quite public. It was quite an ugly demonstration. Uh, There was a very graphic image of a 10-year-old holding up a sign on a local news grab saying sink the boats and there was this kind of discourse that happened around regardless of your political belief you know where you sit on that spectrum there's something broken when we think it's okay to send kids out to essentially advocate for the death of people at sea and so a conversation started amongst a whole range of people, some faith-based, uh, some not, community organisations and key people to say, we need to change something. <laughs> We've got to do something different to try to change the narrative. And so the organisation started around that idea, you know, how do we change that conversation? How do we get the 60% of Australians who kind of want to do the right thing, who don't necessarily have a particular alignment to the hard left or, or the hard right, as we like to kind of polarise these issues and how can we engage those people in a conversation about what it means to help people find safety and belonging in our country. And so that precipitated a few things. There was a push to bring ambassadors on board and kind of unlikely ambassadors. So the Wiggles came on board as an ambassador. What that achieved was people started to go, why are the Wiggles talking about refugees? Why are the Wiggles talking about asylum seekers? Why why is that a thing? Do I need to know about this? And started to prompt conversations that wouldn't necessarily be had in the school grounds and over people's fences. And then out of that came just encouraging people to host uh, welcome dinners, invite people into their homes and and have welcome dinners in their street for their new neighbours, et cetera, and really started to kind of build a movement around that. From there, the organisation has grown and changed over time. We have a number of key national initiatives. We have a centre in Adelaide called the Welcoming Centre, which really tries to model that sense of how do we bring what we call the receiving community and newly arrived migrants, refugees and people seeking asylum together and do that in a way that, that does build a genuine sense of value and belonging. We have Welcoming Cities, which is about working with local government in these spaces around helping uh, local communities become more welcoming and inclusive. And then similar to that, uh, welcoming clubs, working with sporting codes and clubs, and more recently, welcoming universities, looking at how the higher education sector can work more effectively in that space as well. How far have we come since, since back then as a society around the narrative of asylum seekers and refugees? I don't know that we've come very far. (laughs) In some respects, we've gone backwards. But having said that, it depends on where we look. So if we look at the mainstream media, I don't think we've come very far at all. If we look at broader, particularly national political narrative, I don't think we've come very far at all. But I think if we look what's happening on the ground and in communities and at more of a grassroots level, I think we have advanced quite significantly. And so Welcoming Cities would be a good example of that from our perspective. That was literally an idea five and a half years ago. It's now a network of 66 local councils across Australia 
a mix of capital cities and urban councils and regional, rural and remote shire councils representative of about 40% of the Australian population. And so local government and local communities, I think, really do a lot of the heavy lifting in this space and the unrecognised work in this space. And so I think if we look on the ground, there's, there's really amazing work happening. And there's a, there's a really strong movement of people who understand the value of this work. There's a push around community refugee sponsorship in Australia and so many communities and groups putting their hands up to say we would happily sponsor refugees to come and live in our communities and be part of community life. Has life for newly arrived refugees and asylum seekers gotten easier than it was to arrive here 10 years ago? I think that's probably mixed too. We have amazing settlement agencies in this country who do really excellent work in supporting people to settle into the vast complexity of Australian life. But when you layer that with a global pandemic, no one's lives have been particularly particularly easier in the last period of time. We're witnessing the humanitarian crisis out of Afghanistan and, and trying to ensure that people can settle here and settle here well. The work that settlement agencies do in that space is exceptional, but they're increasingly under strain and a lot of their work is obviously tied to funding and funding is limited when people aren't necessarily coming into the country consistently, our borders are closed. And so I think they're finding that they're relatively under-resourced in this space as well, which obviously impacts the people that they're trying to help. Yeah, absolutely. I want to pick back up on something you said right at the start when you were talking about what kind of what doing good means to you now and talking about engaging with First Nations communities in a land where sovereignty was never ceded, we're living on stolen land. How does that intersect with the work that you're doing with new arrivals and and what kind of engagement do you have with First Nations communities around that? Yeah, it intersects in a few ways. When we first started as an organisation, Just to give a practical example, we were called Welcome to Australia. We're now called Welcoming Australia. It's a subtle but I think really important difference and shift that we've made. And the rationale at the time made sense. You know, we were essentially saying welcome to our shores. But as an organisation and individuals within the organisation, we quickly realised that exactly what you're talking about, it's actually not our place to welcome anyone to our shores in the first instance when we're living on stolen land. And so part of that was a branding exercise, of course, around shifting our name and explaining why we were. And welcoming Australia is aspirational. It's not about saying, you know, welcome to somewhere. It's saying this is who we want to be and working within that frame. And then also really building that into our work. And so when we work with local councils, for example, the front end of that work, which includes standards and accreditation. So we created quite a significant framework for local councils to benchmark everything that they do within the welcoming and inclusion space called the Welcoming City Standard. But the opening piece around that is very much looking at engagement with First Peoples and First Nations and ensuring that increasingly local councils and local communities are engaging First Peoples in that space. We also went pretty early on into a process of looking at what work was happening practically on the ground in terms of engaging Indigenous elders and traditional owners and First Peoples 
particularly with new and emerging communities and recently arrived migrants. And initially, the feedback that we would get, particularly from newly arrived migrants, was number one, they had no understanding of the history and the ongoing history of this continent. And often their first encounter with overtly Indigenous culture was at a citizenship ceremony, you know, when they might see a welcome to country or hear an acknowledgement to country or, you know, witness a smoking ceremony. And suddenly it was like, oh, there's a whole aspect of this country that I have no concept of. And so we went through a process of trying to identify existing work. There wasn't a lot of evidence of it out there. And so we piloted some work with local councils, Parramatta City Council being an example, where they brought together local Indigenous elders and traditional owners and recently arrived migrants in a storytelling and truth-telling process and documented that. And we've sort of built a case study around that and shared that more broadly. But it was quite a powerful experience, I think, for both sides in terms of the First Peoples having an opportunity to actually say, welcome to country welcome to our country and explaining what that means. And then for the recently arrived migrants to to understand that as well. And I mean, we find broadly in this space that First Peoples uh, are amazingly and selflessly supportive of refugees and asylum seekers because they understand dispossession. You know, they live dispossession daily. So they're amazing supporters and consistently stand in solidarity with refugees and people seeking asylum when really they clearly have their own battles to fight. When we first spoke on a call, I think it was last week, you mentioned that you guys work in three kind of broad ways. You broke them down for me and the explanation of that really struck me. Can you break those down for us? Yes. So the number one way is community-led and community-owned. This is, you know, certainly the ideal approach. It's strengths-based responses that are identified, framed and delivered by the communities who are most impacted by the issues that we're campaigning about or, or advocating for. So, you know, it looks like refugee voices. It looks like organisations like the National Refugee and Asylum Seeker Advisory Group that is totally run and led by people from refugee backgrounds and, and asylum seeking backgrounds and amplifying those voices. The other way of working is agency-led, which can be okay and appropriate, especially if it involves amplifying and, and resourcing community-led and community-owned work. And the third way that I think is all too prevalent, and I think we're so used to it that we don't even notice it really, is around co-opted and, and stolen ways of working where agencies continually centre themselves and their organisation and their issues in and around the issue rather than amplifying the voices and really promoting lived experience. And, you know, what that can look like on a really simple and practical level is making fundraising all about you and your organisation, which on a practical level, I guess I understand because you're trying to pay people and keep the doors open and the lights on. But at the end of the day, we're working in a purpose-driven and mission-led space. And if our mission is to address a specific issue, then the mission has to be more important than the organisation. And so I think we're so used to that sort of co-opted or stolen way of working that we're getting better at being agency-led, 
and still have a long way to go when it comes to community-led and community-owned work. Absolutely. I mean, I definitely say that the third way is definitely the dominant way of working. And and as you said, I think we don't realise the harm that it causes because we are so used to just living within and operating within that system. It makes me think about kind of how rare it is one, for an organisation to interrogate and identify those three different ways of working, but also to start thinking about, like, what does it actually look like, perhaps in a in large bureaucratic organisation, so not smaller kind of organisations, but big ones with entrenched systems and structures and hundreds of staff dispersed everywhere. How hard do you think it is to kind of change the dominant way in that environment? I think it's really hard. I think it's really messy. You know, we're all about bottom-up approaches, but it really has to come from the top. It has to be led at an executive level, at a board level, at a CEO level, where the organisation is willing to put, you know, its hand on its heart, so to speak, and go, we actually need to do this better. You know, recognising our history as a country, recognising that we're in a settler colonial nation, recognising all these things. How do we begin to address that? You know, where have we done this work poorly, let's be honest about that and let's look at what we need to do to begin to sort of dismantle and then transform our ways of working. It's certainly happening. I've recently joined the board of Oxfam Australia and my understanding of that organisation and something that led me to join their board really was that they have been and they're continuing to go through that process right now. And so they've been very clear about this is what they're focused on and what they're doing around first people's justice, climate justice, uh, economic justice and gender justice. How they've done that in an international development framework really poorly for a very long time. You know, it's a very colonial system and way of working and going through quite a painful process of pulling that apart and trying to work very differently. It's a very real and a very sort of current conversation at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I've got another episode with a woman called Marianne Clements, a colleague from the development sector as well. And we were talking about how challenging it is to, yes, identify the need to shift a culture, but then to dismantle and deconstruct all the systems and processes that support it but at the same time requiring the individuals within to actually self-reflect and think about why they're here. You know, what are they getting out of it by operating in this system? And she talked a lot about this idea of international development aid is a colonial practice and the entire system is built on that. And a lot of people go into it to try to undo the impacts of colonisation in in various places, yet we're just continually perpetuating it. And to really stop and go, what do I get out of this and how am I continuing to perpetuate it is really hard for the individual. It's it's almost easier to look at it as external to yourself and, and not see yourself as part of that system because it's so confronting. Absolutely. The metaphor that we kind of use around this is about walking behind 
you know, there's a lot of talk and there has been a lot of talk about, you know, the importance of partnership and co-design and walking beside, whether that's walking beside first peoples or, or refugees and people seeking asylum. But I think the conclusion that we came to internally as an organisation pretty early on is we don't really know how to do that work. We're so used to leading. We're so used to being the white saviour, even though we would never dare frame it in those words or believe that we would have that mentality that we actually don't know how to walk beside until we're willing to walk behind and say, okay, you lead on this issue. How can we help you and genuinely do that and continually remind yourself that you're not leading this process? Then we can't even begin to start to look at what partnership might be. So yeah, we're kind of trying to take that frame and kind of build from there. When you work in a space that's identified as good or helping or something like that, and perhaps you get recognised for it, you get positive feedback from your community and from the people around you and you start to integrate the idea that you're a good person, you're a helper, and it becomes part of your identity. This is kind of who I am, particularly people that found organisations or lead them. I wonder often around the kind of self-identification at the helper and the externalisation of problems. If it's, you know, I'm here to help, therefore the problems are outside of me, not within me. Therefore, I'm not going to examine my own role in it. I'm just going to continually see myself as the one that's got the answers and can solve the problems. I mean, that's not what we're saying when we're talking about walking behind because we absolutely contribute to the problem and you're absolutely right it's a drug you know we don't realize it necessarily but it's like oh I'm, I'm so good and I'm so important and I'm so helpful yeah. and it's often above criticism so you know we're sitting here talking about this at the moment and interrogating it but we're also in an echo chamber at the same time that the general public are not really up for criticising people who are dedicating their lives to doing what other people think is good. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know that I have the answers, but these conversations are really important. And I think you've got to be willing to own that every day and not just go, oh, we did that conversation. We did that sorry business. We did this, you know, let's move on. Reminding ourselves that, you know, this is a very real issue on unceded land and you know, we wake up on stolen land every day and we benefit from that. So I think the more that we can remind ourselves of the reality, the more that we can remind ourselves that we're constantly part of the problem without it being this kind of chest beating thing. And then again, centering ourselves as the victim in the conversation, because that becomes a risk too. You know, I didn't know, I didn't mean it. And then people, rather than just owning that they did the wrong thing and apologizing and moving on, they then become the victim and celebrated for being the victim. And oh, good on you for owning up to it. What about the poor person that, you know, that racist act was committed against and they're not celebrated you know that's why we have the adam goods of the world is because the people who live it and experience it and stand up for it continue to be vilified and the people who perpetrated that but then you know might own up to it are somehow celebrated and so it's the, the daily reality yeah just picking up on one of those other three ways of, of working and, and talking about the way that 
we want to and should be working 100% of the time. And the tension between that as an agency that accesses funding and exists within a system that, yes, is built on colonial ideals, has the networks and pathways and conduits to the people in power to access that funding. If we're working towards directing donations, directing everything towards communities and community-led ways of being, how do you deal with the tension of working yourself out of a role or working your agency out of a position of power and agency itself. Yeah, we're aspirational as an organisation, but our aspiration is not to be big. We're in the luxurious, relatively luxurious position that when we're trying to keep our organisation itself going, we're talking about 14 people really, as opposed to 140 or, or 400 people. But I think by default, because we are taking this approach, we're auspicing a lot more work. So we're finding that we're applying for grants on behalf of organisations a lot more. That mix has shifted significantly in our organisation and that creates a lot more work. It gets the people who are concerned about risk a lot more nervous because we don't have control of that work, but our name is on it and our insurance covers it. We're collectively fundraising. We're fundraising for a lot more organisations and or communities and or individuals. I don't like talking about things in these kind of terms, but it hasn't impacted our bottom line negatively. If anything, it's brought in more resource to do this work for more communities and more individuals because people are looking in and going, you can do that. You don't have to send to yourself in that fundraising campaign. You can fundraise on behalf of another organisation and that works. And you can, you know, support a fledgling community organisation to run this project rather than doing it all yourself and or branding it all you. And that works too. And so for the moment, it seems to be working really well and it's really starting to grow some, some interesting work out of it. Yeah, amazing. What is the most challenging part of your job? What what is the hardest thing that you deal with on a daily basis? That's a really good question. The thing that makes me most tired, and I don't know if this is the hardest thing, is trying to walk the difficult line of nonpartisanship, I think, particularly at a political and kind of media narrative level I find that really exhausting and challenging I think we'd like to be a lot more vocal about some things that we find that we're not able to and maybe that's our own stuff and we just need to own it and be more vocal but part of the reason that we feel like we can't be more vocal is tied to funding and is tied to conditions that are placed on grants it's tied to nervousness around legislation that's being flagged or although it looks like it might not go ahead now around community organizations not being able to be vocal about certain political or legislative issues so I find that the hardest thing I feel like sometimes that's almost being dishonest and one of our core values as an organization is honesty and so I think that is quite challenging but also if we don't like that then how do we do things differently so that we're not in that position so I think 
those are the things that we find the hardest is trying to grapple with if this isn't working and we're frustrated by this particularly, then what do we need to do differently to change that? Yeah, sure. Can you think of anyone who has been a strong influence on you in in the path that you've chosen for your life and your career? I have a few close friends slash mentors that I go to when I just need to scream at the clouds or, you know, throw ideas around with or whatever. One of those people is my partner in life who is truly amazing and is probably the unsung hero of all the things that I do. Another person who was the first person to give me a shot, he was essentially my boss many, many years ago, who is still a dear friend and mentor who I think I owe a lot of my thinking and practice to. So, yeah, there's a small handful of people that I won't name that continue to be a safe place to challenge me as well and go, why would you even think of doing that? That's a a beautiful segue into my next question, actually, which is a, a philosophical question. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And it's something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. Oh, there's so many that spring to mind. I think broadly it's our resistance to change. You know, I was reading just recently some research, which is very sobering, around people displacement in the next 10 to 30 years. You know, the research tells us that by 2050 there might be 1 billion people displaced either internally or forced out of their country because of climate change. And You know, whether it's climate change or or addressing sovereignty and first people's justice, I I think we just are so resistant to change when it's actually in our best interest. It's hitting us in the face that we need to. Climate change is a thing and we're still just on this path of blind destruction. And it's just like, why? What is wrong with us that causes us to refuse to change? Yeah. Good question. Aleem, if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? Embrace humility. My reflection over time as a so-called leader is that humility, I think, is one of the greatest values that a leader can have, you know, whether that's leading your home or whatever that looks like in your world. And I think the absence of humility is why we're so stubborn and resistant to change. It's why we're so polarised. It's why we have angry yelling matches. And I think the more that we would be willing to embrace humility, the better world that we would see around us. Definitely. A bit of a funny question in a a time where there's not much movement going on, but where is your favourite place on earth? Gosh, there's a little place in North Queensland that I just loathe to say this in the midst of COVID and lockdown, but I just recently had the privilege of visiting. It's called Forest Beach, but it's kind of on the North Queensland coast, about an hour and a half north of Townsville. And there's a community there called Mangala, which is a whole tranche of land that's just been handed back to traditional owners. And it's just physically and environmentally one of the most beautiful places on earth, but just also in terms of 
the community that's forming around this place where the traditional owners are actually on country uh, is just amazing. It's my happy place. Beautiful, beautiful. What book are you reading right now? I've just picked up a book by Bell Hooks on my Kindle called All About Love and I literally just turned the front cover on it yesterday but I'm really looking forward to it. I've come across her work recently, referenced in a whole range of work around anti-racism and even referenced by First Nations academics and I'm, I'm really looking forward to digging into it. Excellent. And do you listen to podcasts? I do listen to podcasts. I have recently subscribed to the Good Problem podcast, just a shameless plug for you there. And uh, there's a few others that I subscribe to, but yeah, I I love podcasts. I think they're excellent. Yeah. It's such a different way of uh, taking in information, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Aleem. I have loved this conversation. It's always so good to unpack these issues, but also to notice the threads that run through each episode and the different people from vastly different spaces are all starting to, you know, have these conversations more and more. And and, and I really agree with you. It's These aren't one-time conversations. These are things that we need to be constantly talking about and and normalising the conversations. So I want to thank you for your time and for your experience and your knowledge and also for the amazing work that you're doing. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It's been great. No worries. And where can people find you or your work if they want to know more? Uh, They can find our work at Welcoming Australia at welcoming.org. Dot au and they can find me personally if they really want to on twitter at aleem sean excellent thank you this podcast is recorded on the lands of the jajawurung and tongrung people in the kulin nation we acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. The Good Problem Podcast is a project of Alto. We partner with purpose-driven leaders from the business, non-profit and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical and sustainable impact. Find out more at www.altoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Alto.